Welcome back to Geek Channel 8. I'm Eric. I'm Rosie. And I'm Johanna. And this week we are talking Nosferatu, a symphony of horror from 1922. But first, before we get into that, what has been going on in your world, Johanna? So my dad has one of those Regal Cinemas passes that allows him to see a movie every day. And so for the first time ever, he's going to see all of the Best Picture nominees. And he really wants to talk to me about them. So I'm desperately trying to catch up. And I saw Poor Things yesterday, Yorgos Lanthimos's new film starring Emma Stone and Willem Dafoe and Mark Ruffalo. It's a take on Frankenstein. So figured it would be of interest to our listeners. And it's a really fun twist on it with buckets and buckets of great sex for Emma Stone. And oh. yeah, yeah. And really, you know, genuinely taking the feminist themes of the original Frankenstein story and taking them in a modern direction. Definitely, it's not the film where you feel like you're enjoying the entire thing. Like, there are parts where Emma Stone's character is super annoying, but overall... <laughs> Emma Stone, super annoying? I cannot <laughs> imagine that. Like, even the stuff that is disgusting and off-putting is for a good purpose. And ultimately, it's a really fun, creative film that I recommend. Well, are you up for watching it again if we do a Frankenstein arc someday? Damn straight. Okay, because that may have already been under consideration. Rosie, how about you? What's been going on with you? Out of curiosity, I saw that Jodie Foster was starring in the season of True Detective, and I was like, well, what's this about? I decided to check it out, and I've been making my way through the first season, and the first season stars Matthew McConaughey and Woody Harrelson. It's kind of a dirty, gritty murder mystery detective show based in Louisiana, and Wow, it's really good. It's pretty intense. I have to watch it in short spurts where I'm in a place where I can pay a lot of attention because it's one of those shows where every detail counts. So you got to make sure that you catch everything so you understand it. I even had to like go back and rewatch episodes to make sure I understood what was going on. But uh, wow, it's it's really good. Highly recommend. Yeah, first season is excellent. I confess that when I heard the reviews weren't great of the subsequent seasons, I took a break, but I have started watching the Jodie Foster season also. And yeah, I'm oh, I'm so psyched to hear what you think, because season one is some of the best television out there, I think. So yeah. I hope you enjoy it. I don't know what it is about HBO that has such an obsession with Louisiana and Texas, but like True Blood, which I would love to address someday because I actually read the whole Charlene Harris series. It's one of the only book series I actually made it all the way through because I'm not a reader. I love to read. Don't get me wrong, but I'm not a reader. I don't take the time to read. I'm way too busy for my own good. So to sit down and read a book is just unfathomable to me because the kind of job I have, I can't do it either. But I read that whole series when my kids were growing up. And when that show came out, of course, I had to watch it. I still have the cover of Entertainment Weekly from when the show first came out. But that was also based in Louisiana, like right around Shreveport, things like that. It had the mystique that comes along with Louisiana associated with, you know, the Creole 
the yeah. and Cajun culture down there. Gotta love some Southern Gothic. Definitely, definitely. Vampires are due a revisit on this podcast at some point in the future. Dracula deserved his own arc on our show, but there are a ton of really good vampire films without Dracula and TV shows, and True Blood is one of them. So it's in our ever-increasing bag of, we'd like to get to that sometime. But uh, before we can do that, let's go back to really one of the first, if not the first, vampire on film, Nosferatu from 1922. What was life like in 1922? It was a very interesting year in history. It was the year that the USSR formed. It was the year that the Lincoln Memorial was dedicated by the one and only William Howard Taft, who was a former president and justice on the U.S. Supreme Court. Ireland's Civil War began. It began in June and lasted 11 months. Um, Reader's Digest cre was created by DeWitt and Lila Wallace. Now it's being published in 15 languages and available all around the world. So really grew from that. The BBC was formed that year. So first it was originally privately owned by Marconi Radio Communications Company to broadcast experimental radio. It was shut down in 1927 and then started back up by Royal Charter to create a non-commercial entity that they now call the BBC. Their first broadcast was a rugby game, England versus Wales. Also, that was the year that insulin was created and successfully used in Canada. Those are some key things that happened in 1922. So it's actually kind of a pivotal year. Okay, this is one of, if not the most complicated films in terms of its history. Before Johanna goes into the production notes, We've probably all watched different versions of this. I thought this was going to be the easiest thing to find because it's in the public domain. Turns out it's only been in the public domain since 2019, although it was previously in the public domain. It's very complicated. The long and short of it is finding it on streaming is next to impossible in an uncut, original, tinted style, which is, I went into a whole rant about color last time, and I'm going to go into it about it this time too there are just dozens and dozens of bad versions of this film out there the best versions generally people agree on are the brits the bfi version and eureka's masters of cinema version so i don't know what versions you guys saw but being quote unquote in the public domain this turned out to be one of the hardest films for me to track down i went through Hell, I even tried using a proxy server to log in through London to watch it on a British streaming service. So that's how hard I looked. First, let's talk about the production notes, Johanna. So what I was interested to discover, because I've seen this film maybe six or seven times, and I definitely remember seeing versions that were not color tinted. And the first time I saw it color tinted, I was like, whoa, you know, the Criterion Collection has taken some liberties. But I was surprised to learn in my research that the color tinting was original to the film and it was designed to indicate when it was day and night. So things that are just like regular black and white are generally just like regular daytime. And there's not very much of that. 
and then blue green is nighttime and the pinks and the yellows are like dawn and dusk so when i learned that it gave me a whole new appreciation for what was going on because of course it would have been extremely difficult to film at night in 1922 mm -hmm. so i thought that was a really great uh, creative solution to the problem yeah, I just want to chime in on that real quick. Using the blue tint day for night shooting is something that I hadn't seen. Previously, I had only seen this film in black and white, and it does make all the difference in the world. And it's ironic because the first film I ever made, I did not have the ability to shoot at night. And I shot during the day, tinted it blue, reduced the contrast. This was one of the things that I... I independently discovered on my own. I think it's just something that filmmakers are like, how can I fix this, you know? <laughs> and Murnau was ingenious. This movie holds up a hundred years later, but I get ahead of ourselves. So the, the studio behind Nosferatu, Prana Film, you probably haven't heard of because this was their one and only movie. It's, it was founded in 1921 by Enrico Diekman and an occultist, artist named Albin Grau, and they named it after the Hindu concept of prana. Their goal was to create occult and supernatural themed films, but Nosferatu ended up being its only production. They declared bankruptcy shortly after the film's release. A lot of the names, in fact, all the names have been changed in the film. And there was some speculation that this was because they were hoping to avoid copyright infringement. But Actually, the names were changed in order to make it feel more accessible to German viewers. They ended up in copyright entanglement anyway. And in some of the original intertitles, they directly attributed Stoker's Dracula as the source. So as a result of this entanglement, Florence, Bram Stoker's widow, did not like the fact that she wasn't getting a cut of the profits. And most of the copies of the film were destroyed at the time. But a few survived the film being a remarkable specimen of cinema, continued to be shown underground for a long time before it was finally restored in the 1970s, I think. One of the things I spent a lot of time looking into was that given that this released in 1922, between the end of World War I and the rise of Nazism in Germany, I was very interested in how this film was received and whether it was intended as anti-Semitic propaganda or whether it just seems that way from a modern lens because of the intense makeup <laughs> that Shrek is wearing as Nosferatu. It turns out that even though there's quite a lot of anti-semitism in the original novel there aren't really any jewish characters there's like two characters who are briefly mentioned so it's a little muddy about whether the source material intends for dracula to be coded as jewish or not consequently it's unclear if this version also intends for count orlock to be coded as jewish or not the screenwriter, whose name was Henrik Galen, was actually Jewish, I was surprised to learn. And there were 10 or so actors in the film who were also Jewish, most notably uh, the guy who plays the Renfield character, who in this version is named Nock, was one of 
the most lauded actors in Berlin at the time. Uh, his name was Alexander Granach. So it's kind of interesting because one of the impacts that this film had was Nazis seized upon it pretty eagerly as a metaphor to use. And Hitler used vampires as a metaphor several times in Mein Kampf. And there were multiple future Nazis who were at the premiere of this film in 1922. So it has sort of a complicated legacy. But from my research, it seems that Murnau himself was probably not anti-Semitic. Supposedly, the love of his life was the son of a Jewish banker or merchant. So it's unlikely that Murnau or Shrek or any of the other non-Jewish creatives involved were anti-Semitic themselves. And of course, you know, so, you know, to have the writer Jewish as well, it seems like the film may have been designed to be a critique of anti-Semitism that was mishandled and misinterpreted by particular audiences at the time. And some of this is because the story of Dracula is really the story of an outsider coming into a civilization and causing violence, devastation, and havoc. And you can read whatever outsider you want onto that monstrous character. So depending on your interpretation, some critics have seen Nosferatu as actually a stand-in for Hitler, as a, a sign of anti-Semitism and violence coming into their more or less orderly society and causing this devastation. And then other critics see Nosferatu as coded as Jewish and that the film is all about the fear of the Eastern European Jew coming towards Western culture. So it's really interesting that the film can be read in both ways. I confess I did not find the sort of reputable sources on this topic that I expected to find, given how interesting this topic would be. The Nazis cast this huge shadow that it's really hard to escape from. Goebbels' propaganda films involved like rats, like hordes of rats, which we'll talk about uh, when we talk about Herzog's version of this. It caused difficulties just even trying to film it because he was German. And if you remember when we watched The Forbidden Zone, that was accused of being anti-Semitic. And Richard Elfman was just like, I just cast my uncle and he was playing himself. You know, it's like <laughs> the problem is once something is tainted with that Nazi brush, it's really hard to escape it. I was unaware of that connection first time I saw this. The second time I saw this, I'm like, oh, yeah, of course. Max Shrek's character is supposed to be this hook-nosed, deformed-looking Jew guy. This is what they're trying to go for. And then, like, the true litmus test is Riefenstahl. Like, do you consider her someone who did what she had to get by and made Nazi propaganda films when she made Triumph of the Will, and then when Nazis were no longer in power, was able to make the film she wanted? Or do you believe that she's a true believer? Because she then made the Olympia, Olympia movie following Triumph of the Will. It's a sports movie. Okay, so we can get away from like the Nazis, but everybody saw it and it's like about the Ubermensch and, you know, it's like about these these athletes are the uh, the best in the world and all of that. And so even up to the time of her death in this century, early 2000s, she finally tried to, to get away from it by making nature documentaries like Impressions Underwater, which is like about sharks and stuff like that.
But when you watch it, it's like there are still people that say, see, it's about Darwinism and, you know, these species and, you know, all that. So it's like she could never get away from that. And maybe she shouldn't be allowed to get away from that. You know, she was clearly a collaborator. So I don't know. I, I really don't know when it comes to a film like this, it is going to be impossible to untangle and it's going to be there forever. It's going to be tarred with that. Well, I think what I want to emphasize is th this film was definitely made before Nazis were a major force. So like, I wouldn't consider this as something that was part of Murnau's creative intent so much as there's stuff in there that clearly resonated with this group of people. And it's interesting to, to look at the film. I mean, especially with the rise of anti-Semitism again today and think about how major artistic forces in our culture, which maybe don't start as having this reading can be co-opted by people. It's also interesting looking at the film in an artistic way and comparing it to some of the Nazi propaganda films of the time, which tend to glorify death and, you know, and be about sort of the force of a person's will being able to dominate and that that romanticism about death is something that is part of the Dracula story. It's part of the vampire lore and this kind of push pull of like wanting to die and being unable to die and sort of this like quasi longing for death and then also you know the terror of death on the part of the quote-unquote innocent characters that a lot of that also got drawn into Nazi propaganda and so it's interesting seeing how this film might have been influential on those later artworks and messaging even though it might not have been designed that way in 1922. And I want to clarify that I am well aware that this came out long before the Nazis. Yes. However, Nazis did not invent anti-Semitism. And it, it... <laughs> no, and neither did Bram Stoker. I mean, the blood libel stuff like goes back to the Middle Ages, if not earlier. <laughs> All right. Let's chill out and have a beverage here. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I think I think we all need to simmer down. I never drink. Why? This segment is going to be for the, at least the rest of our Dracula arc, now known as I Never Drink Wine. So in this, <laughs> in this sequence of films, I was going to do wine pairings from the point of view of a person who knows nothing about wine. Perfect. So that's why it's and called. And here I, I talked you up to my kids. I was like, he knows more about wine than me. So, you know, we're going to switch. Like, fine. <laughs> no, it's because I, I don't know anything about wine. So whenever I was looking for drinks from Germany in 1922, beer kept coming up, particularly one beverage. Finally, after trying forever to find what Germans were drinking in 1922, I finally decided that the very first segment of I Never Drink Wine is going to be because we're not actually drinking wine, we're drinking beer. <laughs> <laughs> in particular, the drink The Rattler came up a lot. Nice. Because according to legend, it was invented in 1922 and was all the rage in Germany in 1922, the year that this film came out. So Rattler actually is short for Rattler Moss, which is cycle leader. And allegedly it was 
and I say allegedly because there's actually evidence that, that this might not be true, but we're dealing with legends and mythology here. Franz Kugler in the town of Dysenhofen outside of Munich, there was apparently a cycling boom in the 20s, the roaring 20s. My source for all this is Wikipedia, as usual. <laughs> uh, there's a lot of different legends around Kugler and the Rattler, but one of the things was that there was a bicycle trail that went by his establishment. Some say that he actually made the bike pass so it would come straight to his drinking establishment. Whatever the case is, Rattler means cyclist in German, and it's a combination of beer and some sort of soft drink like limoncello or, uh, you know, it's essentially a shandy. It's a type of shandy. If you go to Wikipedia looking for Rattler, it will redirect you to shandy. So lemonade, whatever, usually some sort of citrus, either citrus beverage or a citrus soda. The references to it going back to 1912. So that's how we think that this might be all legend that Cooler came up with or something. And it's also consumed in other countries. It's in, consumed in Bavaria, Austria, Czechia, Hungary, Italy, Slovakia, Slovenia, Poland, Serbia, Croatia, the Netherlands, Portugal, Norway, Bulgaria, the United States, Canada, and Romania. So in Germany, it's usually half and half mix of Pilsner and soft drink. The legend here is that, and the number of cyclists varies, but the one I see most frequently cited is 13,000 cyclists showed up at once on a mass biking thing to Kugler's Inn, which still exists, by the way. And he ran out of beer or was running out of beer. So he went down to the cellar and he found this lemon soda that nobody was drinking. So he started mixing it 50-50. Supposedly, he marketed it as, you know, it was safer for the bikers, too, because it was less alcohol. Whatever the case is. Tastes uh, great. Less filling. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Half and half mixer of Pilsner beer and a soft drink, Alstavasa, which is water from the Alster, a river in Hamburg. Rattler or Alster often was made with orange-flavored drinks. They're synonymous in parts of Germany. In Austria, a sour Radler is a mix of lager and soda, soda water. It's really popular in the summer months due to its low alcohol content and being a thirst quencher. But those are all legends about Kugler. I have heard, although I don't have any sources for it because I heard this a while back and was then unable to find them, but it's certainly possible. Another possible explanation here is that there was rampant hyperinflation in post-World War I Germany. As we know, it was one of the root causes of World War II. And according to PBS.org, this is something I do have a source for, prices doubled from 1914 to 1919 and doubled again during just five months in 1922. Beer went from 5.6 to 18 marks per liter. Add that, and then I've also heard that rationing put in place during World War remained in effect in many places. So it's not too hard to imagine that it might have been introduced by necessity or as a cost-cutting measure. I mean, mm -hmm. even if it wasn't as a cost-cutting measure, he certainly profited more by watering down his beer. In any case, here's what I did, because I always drink or eat what I recommend in these segments. I actually do this pairing myself. I took a hand juicer 
and I squeezed the blood, the the I squeezed the juice of one blood orange. See, I'm on to you, Eric. I you know I was worried about this. I only I I never drink wine. I, I see what you did there. Yeah, you see what I did there. I used I yeah. actually. I used a blood orange. I squeezed the juice of one blood orange into a glass and then I topped it up with beer. I used peak organic super light lager, which is sort of equivalent. They say a light pilsner or lager is what this was often mixed with. It was delicious and it was this great red color. So it was perfect for this episode. So that is my recommendation for a pairing with Nosferatu, a symphony of horror a rattler preferably one made with a blood orange very nice you guys ready to jump into talking about this film you betcha let's do it so this takes place in weisborg and instead of harker he's known as hutter right he gets sent to transylvania by his real estate employer to visit count orlock I'm not going to go too deep in this because the plot is exactly the same as all these other Dracula films. Eventually, he gets to the castle. And of course, he's told the servants are gone for the evening and all of that. Cuts himself and Orlok tries to suck the blood and he yanks his hand back, you know, that kind of thing. All of the usual things he learns about Mina, which is not Mina in this one. It is Ellen. Yes. And... Basically, the same thing happens here. Like, he's forced to spend the night in the castle, and we don't have the brides in this version. That's one major difference. But he's basically stuck there, locked in, which was kind of weird because he was able to freely roam only moments ago, so I think there might be some missing scenes here. Oh, this film is not 100% restored. Probably should have mentioned that. There still may be missing scenes. We're not sure. But then he was locked in his room in, in the next scene. So I, I suspect we're missing a scene there. Orlock hauls a bunch of coffins onto a carriage and takes off. I don't know why it struck me so funny, but I thought it was funny that Nosferatu was loading up the back of the carriage with all of these coffins. And then he puts his on the very top and gets inside. <laughs> it was just like who was driving. <laughs> part, part of what makes that scene funny I think is we don't have it in the right frame rate. I should mention that 90% of you will see this since we are mostly have an American audience. Most of you guys are going to see a version of the criterion version of this, I think, which is really messed up. It's considered one of the worst versions of this film because they dropped a ton of frames from it. And it is, it is missing like a third of the film or something like that. So while they thought they were making this great restoration, it is widely considered to be worse than some of the public domain versions out there. I kind of like the creative flourishes they took with the intertitles, though. I wish we could have the redacted, unspecialized version of the original Star Wars where they like kept the good stuff and removed all the do-backs and Jabba the Hutt and whatnot. Like, I kind of wish that there were a version of this where we got the new inner titles but with the old film right mm -hmm. yeah yeah that would be pretty cool yeah there are a bunch of different versions of this i should mention that like i looked at a whole bunch while i was trying to figure out which one to watch and i i came across the one that was put out by cleopatra records which is the goth 
label that had basically all of their goth bands on it. And I thought about watching that one since I couldn't find one with the original Erdman score. But I did finally find one with the Erdman score, which I think is the best score for this film. So I just want to echo Rosie's comment about how funny the film is. That was something that struck me watching it this time around also. Like one of the intertitles about Knock says about whom all sorts of rumors circulated. There's just like funny turns of phrases throughout throughout the film or funny moments. I also will note that I like this version of the tavern scene best of all of the Draculas we've seen so far. And I think yeah. <laughs> one of the things I like about it is that it is very brief and like captures the tavern feeling and then kind of like moves on, which is sort of how I feel the tavern scene is supposed to go. And in a lot of mm-hmm. other versions of Dracula, it feels belabored and like, you know, has a little bit too much significance put on it. Horror like of Dracula in particular. Yeah. Yeah, that one, like, we'll talk about other later versions, but this, my favorite tavern scene. Okay, so I didn't find this movie funny most of the time. I found it very chilling. Like, this is actually scary. If you find a good version of this and watch it at night with the lights out, it's still scary to this day. But there were some funny things, particularly in Act 1 and Act 2. I summarize basically up to him escaping the bedroom, which is the end of act two. So we should talk about both the first two acts. But some of the things I did find funny is when the unscrupulous real estate broker gets this letter, it looks like it's written in dingbats by hand, you know, or (laughs) web digs or something like that. It's like, it's like some 13 year olds secret code with little skulls and crossbones and weird symbols something that like a 13 year old would think an incantation would be written in or something like that (laughs) thank Um, you for saying it so i didn't have to (laughs) i don't know if you guys noticed that but i'm like we could have gotten something written in romanian and showed it on screen or we can just like draw a bunch of weird characters on a piece of parchment and say that this is how he deciphered it i have no idea but Nosferatu language. Then there's a line where he says about 15 minutes into the film where they're like, the werewolf roams the woods. And then I'm like, is that a hyena? Because it looks like a hyena to me. It definitely looks <laughs> like a hyena. I originally gave Dracula 1931 crap about putting possums in there. <laughs> but clearly there is a tradition of putting weird animals into these things because I swear to God, it was a hyena, not a werewolf. Yeah, it definitely wasn't what I expected. But this was a closer adaptation of Dracula than what I had remembered it. Another little weird thing when it comes to props is what was with that pipe that the ship owner smoked? Did you guys see that? It's like you. It's like four feet long or five feet long, (laughs) kind of like an opium pipe, maybe. Yeah, that was my best guess. I forgot to look that up because, you know, I'm interested. (laughs) (laughs) watching this i realized that this is the film that confused me about lucy's sleepwalking unless there's significant missing scenes which there might be some things here that presume familiarity with the novel already hutter's scene going where he wants in the castle and finding orlock's coffin but immediately following that we see him seeing orlock loading the coffins leaving but he can't get out of his room so either orlock came and locked his door or something and then the other is this sleepwalking stuff and i think there was a bat that came to ellen's room so it was like 
did the bat fly all the way to Germany and then come back, you know, or what? I have no idea. It's just kind of confusing. One of the things I want to bring out about this version that's different from the other Draculas, in one of the intertitles, it notes that the dirt that Dracula is traveling in is cursed dirt from fields of the Black Death. And that this version, um, because it was done in 1922, which would have been around the time of the Spanish influenza that killed tons of people post-World War I, the connection between Dracula and the plague is something that doesn't really show up in the original novel and is particular maybe to something that people in Germany would have been terrified of right now. I had forgotten about that until I did some research into, you know, particular things about this version. I wanted to bring this up too, because when we were watching the 1979 Hollywood version of Dracula with Frank Langella, I mentioned that why was it in the Edwardian era? My theory for why it was in the <laughs> Edwardian era was that it was a time when people could still remember, you know? There were still people mm. alive who remembered the Edwardian era. And the bubonic plague, we generally think of it as so long ago, and it swept Europe during the Middle Ages. And yeah, that was the worst one, but it was a series of plagues. It wasn't just one. And it seems so long ago to us now because the last one was more than 100 years ago. But the very last one, the last of the series of bubonic plagues that was major plagues, came out of Hong Kong. But it reached every major seaport in the world by 1900. So only 22 years before this. So that was the last episode outbreak pandemic of the plague was still around. So yeah, I think it would have been on their minds. That makes sense. Let's jump into act three, where it opens up in most modern versions. You know, you get Van Helsing talking about the vampire bat and stuff like this. In this one, it's carnivorous plants. So I think they got, <laughs> they got a hold of a Venus flytrap. Interestingly, again, a new world thing, right? I don't think Venus flytraps exist outside of the Americas naturally. Mm -hmm. It didn't make sense to me. I'm like, why are we, why are we talking about that? It doesn't seem like the same thing to me. It doesn't make sense. But I think it's a, it's weird and exotic. Kind of like true. if you think about the early silent films, it's not that long before this where it was like train coming into station was like a film, or it's like, <laughs> hey, let's let's make a film about this thing that most people never see, you know? And and I think it mm -hmm. goes to the hyena too. It's like we can throw this in there. People have never seen this and it's weird and it kind of fits. It's about a, a plant that eat, that survives by eating bugs, you know? So why not, you know? As things progress here, I had a question about the voyage of the Demeter in this. There's no storm. So why would the captain lash himself to the wheel? I've always assumed that that was his reason for doing it. But it's in this, it's in almost all the versions. I wanted to bring this up when Courtney was with us because she said that the storm from her interpretation was the sea rejecting Dracula. And I've always considered it as Dracula commanding the storm, you know, but if in fact it was rejecting him, 
it seems really weird that he would prey upon the crew, who's his only lifeline to getting to land safely if he's not controlling the storm. And it really makes it weird why a sea captain would lash himself to the wheel in smooth sailing. My answer to that is... The diary entries that they read from the captain has a very like, and then there were none feeling. So my interpretation was that the captain lashed himself to the wheel because folks seemed to just be mysteriously disappearing overboard and he didn't want it to happen to him. So he tied himself to something. <laughs> so I thought it was maybe out of, out of self-interest and not out of, you know, the, uh, you didn't need the storm. I was just going to say Nosferatu with those long-ass Cardi B nails would not be able to untie him. So, <laughs> second layer of protection. <laughs> I saw this film and a bunch of other silent films that I love, like Metropolis, for the first time in the 80s. And what I didn't know, because the 1920s seemed so long ago in the 80s, was that the interest in preservation and restoration of silent films didn't really start until the 70s. And then it was small little collectives. It wasn't done in any major way until the 80s. So when I saw Metropolis and then I watched it again more recently, I realized I hadn't seen Metropolis because I hadn't seen so much that had been found since then. And I suspect that the same thing is true here, that we still do not have the full Murnau Nosferatu, and I bet there is a storm scene missing. Hey, you know, Probably. things to look forward to. You know, later in our lifetime, they will discover the missing reels of this film. When I looked up the film, I saw that th there were several articles there saying that not all of it has been completely restored. There's still missing footage. Yeah. 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 That's... So definitely sounds like a fun Google search to do when you're bored. There's other films we're even more familiar with that still have missing sequences. The missing spider pit sequence from King Kong, for example. I brought this up to Johanna recently when yeah. we were talking about like, oh, it's a fully restored version of King Kong. I'm like, yeah, really? Does it have the spider pit sequence? Because if not, it's not a fully restored version of King Kong. Right, um, it's a not so fully restored version of King Kong. <laughs> just thinking about my old mentor, Bill Pence, who helped to restore King Kong. I think there was just some joy in calling it the uncut King Kong in, you know, just like a very graphic way. <laughs> but we digress. <laughs> Act four, the ship arrives and Orlock departs. Nock, who is essentially our stand-in for Renfield, kills an orderly and the people learn of the arrival of the plague. They think that these deaths are caused by... Army of mice. Or rats, rats or whatever yeah they are. from the ship yeah i think it's also in act four if not in act five when ellen reads the book that talks about how to defeat vampires only a pure-hearted woman can distract the vampire until after the first crowing of the cock in the morning and that he will be destroyed by the sunlight and so in act five that's what she does in this version a woman without sin can sacrifice her own blood to keep him past the dawn. This is the film that really establishes that sunlight kills vampires. In the novel, 
it's more like it weakens him. He can't act by day. I don't remember it specifically saying that it kills him. Certainly not a major combustion kind of thing. I love the inevitability of Nosferatu. Like, whenever you sense that he has a victim in mind, just how very slowly he moves towards them. And this is true of Hutter in the beginning and also of Ellen in the end. Like, for a while, Nosferatu is just like in the window, just like watching her. And that we get a, a lot of anticipation and buildup of the ultimate attack at the end. But the sense of inevitability, I find really creepy in this version. And the inevitability of Nosferatu is the inevitability of death coming towards you. Knowing that this movie is like 102 years old, it's like you're watching living history. And it can also be kind of creepy at the same time because it is film. You're seeing people move in real time from 102 years ago and they put together this amazing drama that's legit scary. It makes it creepier than it normally would just because it's 102 years old. They did an amazing job telling the story. I like really, really old movies just because it's nice to see a window into the way things were done. The stylization, it's like you could tell it's the 20s doing history. You know, just like when you watch a movie from the 70s, when they're doing like the era of the 20s, you can tell it's the 70s doing the 20s, like the same thing. All in all, it was an enjoyable film. I have watched this many times and I will watch it many more times, usually on Halloween with the lights out. Mm -hmm. I think that this... It's perfect for that, yeah. We didn't talk about German expressionism, but this and the cabinet of Dr. Caligari, those two, their visual look is impressive. And this is definitely a moment in time. I keep saying it holds up really well because it really does. The imagery is super creepy. And like, if you were not to do anything else, but, you know, have this on, you know, and not even, not even follow the story, just have this on, you know, which I've done before during like a Halloween party or something like that. It, it just fits the mood. It's just so good. Even separate from considering this as a Dracula adaptation, separate from considering it as a horror film, it is just such a beautiful example of early cinema and it's clear how influential it was on cinema to come just the way the shots are composed the pacing of it it's a beautifully made film it turned 100 a couple of years ago and we can expect it to still be relevant to people who love cinema for you know maybe another 100 years all right well if you have anything to tell us about this film Nosferatu, your viewing of it, anything like that, write to us. It's GC8 podcast, letter G, letter C, number eight podcast at gmail.com and spread the word about the podcast. If you like it, the best thing you can do to help us out is just tell somebody about it. Last year, I asked you to tell one other person. This year, I'm going to ask you to tell two other people. Just tell two people this year, this year. Tell two people about the podcast. Until next time, this is Eric. This is Rosie. This is Johanna. Signing off.
I love, absolutely love the scene where Ellen is at her nightstand getting ready for bed and you see the door open and the shadow behind her, no reflection in the mirror and the shadow just getting closer and closer. Oh no, I'm thinking about the other film. Fuck! All right, cut this out, cut this out. <laughs> ah, okay, sorry. I was going to make the same point though.